Welcome to Meekum Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. It's the show geared toward keeping you up to speed with the latest auto news, event coverage, and expert industry insight. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Avery and John Craman. Hey, and welcome to another On The Move. My name is Matt Avery. I'm executive producer of The Transmission. And joining me is co-host John Craman, lead TV commentator for Mecham Auctions on NBCSN. John, I'm really excited about today's show because it is focusing on a really unique brand, the Auburn Core Duesenberg story, all based in Auburn, Indiana. And today we're going to be interviewing Brandon Anderson, executive director and CEO for the museum, along with curator Sam Great. And then in second Segment three, we're going to be turning our attention to Glendale, and there are so many collections that are coming, and you and I have both found a favorite one that we'll be diving deep into, so that will be at the end of the show. Before we get there, John, let's talk about some Mecham news, including uh, there's some really ex- exciting news that's going to be made <laughs> at Glendale next week. What do we know about it so far? Well, pretty sketchy, but I think we're all going to become brief fully on it, Matt, uh, during a big announcement reveal at Mecham Glendale. It is going to be a major, serious, world-class collection that is going to be heading over to Mecham Indy, the big uh, spring classic. Of course, that is going to be in May. So we will learn more about that and and bring uh, listeners up to date on that during next week's podcast. Really excited to hear exactly what is going to be revealed uh, at Glendale. And really, John, that event kicks off a very busy season ahead for Mecham Auctions. What are the auctions that are taking place after Glendale? Yeah, let's just run down the next four months, Matt. Really brisk, aggressive schedule uh, going into really the early part of 2021. After Glendale, the Gone Farman folks will be in East Moline, Illinois, of course, with the usual beautiful uh, inventory of tractors and trucks and farm relic signs. That'll be March 25th through the 27th. Early April, that'll be April 8th and 10th. Mecham heads over to Houston. And then, uh, of course, the Las Vegas Motorcycle Auction. Now this year going to be held at the the Las Vegas Convention Center, move from January to April. That'll be April 28th through May 1st. We'll have a chance to have Greg Arnold on a future podcast to bring us up to date on the dynamics of how that auction is shaping up. Uh, Indy, the big spring classic that I mentioned earlier that we're waiting for the reveal on the big collection announcement at Glendale. That is going to be happening May 14th through the 22nd and our debut at Tulsa, June 10th through the 12th. So very, very uh, big schedule coming up over the next four months. And uh, we'll be running down the rest of the schedule uh, in future podcasts. Turning our attention to the world of car news, it's always exciting when a model gets closer to arriving in showrooms, and we do have an update from GMC with their all-electric Hummer EV. Now, we already have seen the initial concept that was a pickup truck version, but now the brand is saying that on April 3rd, they'll be showing off the SUV counterpart. What I find is interesting, John, is that the Hummer has such an iconic look in both of those forms, both in pickup truck form and then this SUV enclosed style, and And so it's really kind of worth celebrating, even though at this point, it doesn't look like there's going to be any mechanical differences. We can still expect that all electric uh, powertrain with 350 miles of range, a whopping 1000 horsepower and 11,000 and a half pound feet of torque. One of the things I'm 
curious about is the infinity roof that was shown on the pickup truck. That's a very cool overhead uh, roof design with these modular sky panels. I'm kind of wondering, will we see that on the SUV version? We'll have to wait uh, until April 3rd. And in case you missed it, John, April 3rd uh, is 4-3. And then if you add in the year 21, you get 4-3-2-1. So a little cute there. Kudos to GMC for that. That is cute. You know, we're in an era now where new product announcements are being uh, uh, advertised in advance. This is sort of the way that the uh, manufacturers are doing it now. They typically have got very flashy reveals uh, accessible to everyone just by clicking on uh, some type of a link. So, yes, as we move ahead with uh, the future, obviously, of Hummer, we know we know one thing right now and that these vehicles are going to be expensive and these high range electric vehicles seem to be appealing to the high end luxury market at this time as we move forward whether or not they're going to be able to take that technology and bring that down into the more affordable columns we'll see but i'm guessing price of the gmc uh or of the hummer uh, ev the cross or the uh, SUV version probably going to be similar to the truck pricing. I think we're going to be looking at seventy to a hundred thousand dollars. But uh, hopefully, we'll get pricing information during the reveal on April third. Yeah. Now, John, something else that you and I have talked about is the future of Chrysler, and one of the reasons why that's important is that the company has gone through a lot of change recently. So, Chrysler, under the previous what was known as the FCA Group, has merged with the PSA Group to become Stellantis. All that took place over the last six months. And one of the things that enthusiasts have wondered is what does the future hold for Chrysler? They have really pared down their offerings in the last couple of years. And now it sounds like, John, we might know a little bit about will Chrysler be remaining? What do we know so far? Yeah, the announcement was made by uh, Chrysler parents, Stellantis, Matt, that no changes in the short term anyway, at least for Chrysler. So that leaves two product lines, the Chrysler 300 luxury sedan available in a variety of versions, of course, and the very popular Pacifica minivan, very highly rated minivan at that, to be still a part of the Stellantis lineup. So as as this continues to evolve, obviously we'll be keeping an eye on it. But I, for one, really glad to see a nice old school, you call it a dinosaur, and a lot of people do, that Chrysler 300 platform, been around a long time, but there's something very comfortable and very familiar and very affordable about that platform. So really glad to see that Chrysler, at least for the short term, which I would say probably the next maybe three to five years, is going to remain solid as a nameplate. Speaking of Stellantis, Matt, we've just learned literally that from our friends at Ram, of course, we've celebrated the 2021 Ram 1500 T RX at 702 horsepower monster super muscle truck. A little bit of news tying in with Mecham. What have you heard about that? Well, really exciting, John. Joining the Dodge Thrill Ride that takes place at Mecham Auctions. In addition to Challengers and Chargers, there will be a TRX out on the course, man. And uh, they'll be offering rides for anyone who's at the Mecham Auction. So, really exciting, really interesting. This is something that you and I have talked about. This, you know, now, we, like you said, muscle trucks are now becoming the norm. And I think it's awesome. Mecham Auctions is proud to bring you On The Move with Matt Avery and John Craman. For more on the world of collector cars, head over to Meekum.com. Now let's get back to the show. One of my favorite 
Car Museums is in Auburn, Indiana, and it is the Auburn Cord Dusenberg Museum. And I'm so excited because joining me now is Brandon Anderson, Executive Director and CEO for the facility, along with Sam Great, Curator. Hey, guys, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, we love being here. Thanks so much for inviting us. Uh, It's always great to talk about the museum and share our history with everyone and what's going on. Well, let's start there, guys. Let's start with the history of the Auburn Automobile Company, founded in 1900. Give us an idea of how did the company get started and then the subsequent development of what we know as Auburn, Cord, and Duesenberg vehicles. Well, the the story kind of starts with the Eckhart Carriage Company. Uh, Charles Eckhart had three sons, uh, two of which, um, Frank and Morris, were very much into the newfangled uh, internal combustion automobile that was coming out in the late 1800s, 1890s. And so using some capital from the Eckhart Carriage Company, they started the Auburn Automobile Company in, in 1900 and did their own experimentation and research and stuff and came out with their first Auburn in 1903, which was just a, a single-cylinder, four-horsepower uh, open car. And it sold about 50 cars or so in their first year, which for a small, very localized, regional a car company was a pretty good success for their first year. And they just built up on that more and more. The Eckhart stayed with the Auburn Automobile Company until 1919. Uh, the company kept growing more and more and selling more and more. And in 1919, they sold the Auburn Automobile Company. Charles Eckhart had passed away in, in 1915. So it had been about a four year process for Frank and Morris to get out of the company. Uh, They sold it to a group of investors from Chicago who included William Wrigley Jr. from Wrigley Field and Wrigley Gum. And it was from those Chicago investors that they found E.O. Cord from Chicago, who was selling moon motor cars at Quinlan Motors there in Chicago, accounted for about 40% of all moon sales nationwide at his one dealership. And the, the Chicago investors were just that investors they weren't car guys they weren't uh, car salesmen so the company kind of had some slumps in during that time and they needed someone who knew how to market and sell these cars to come to the company and do that and they found that guy in EO Cord so Cord says uh, I'll take just a very minimal salary but I want stock options instead so the Chicago investors thought hey that sounds good to us we don't have to pay this guy that much he gets the low stock that the company already has. It was kind of a win-win for both. And Eocord set straight to work. He had a game plan in mind, took a lot of the backlog of Auburns that were just sitting there, freshened them up a little bit, sold them. And within two years, he, he owned enough stock to fully take control of the company. So by 1926, he appointed himself as president of the Auburn Automobile Company. One of the remarkable things about these cars is that they really were the pinnacle of innovation, of luxury, of safety, and it sounds like that really was the intent from day one. Right. Uh, Whether it would be the introduction of an eight-cylinder motor, uh, high-end horsepower, stock car racing, uh, racing records, to even having testimonials from uh, loaning them to celebrities to speak about it, just anything marketing, engineering, design, 
anything they could do to stand out above the rest. And, and what was interesting too with the three marks of vehicles, so you're asking about the time period as well. Um, so Auburn, as Sam had mentioned, first, well, started in 1900, first vehicle created in 1903. Those vehicles continued through 1937. Uh, when E.O. Cord came on board and he started his own motor line of the Cord automobile uh, with first starting with the L29, um, the innovation that was created there was the first to have front wheel drive available to the public in an American vehicle. Um, it had a very uh, low slung appearance because it had that front wheel drive, um, very beautiful vehicle. Um, then you look at the Cord 810 and 812 that was created and uh, designed by Gordon Burig and creating that, I mean, the coffin nose there, having that interesting uh, design and the lines that are there. Um, aerodynamic. Yeah, very aerodynamic. Um, that also was the first car to have hidden headlights. Uh, it also had a... Uh, uh, where the fuel cap is, it was hidden. That was the first for that vehicle as well. Um, it had the Bendix drive system on there, the vacuum shifting system, very unique. Uh, when it debuted in 19, for the 1935 uh, auto show, um, those people were standing on other vehicles literally to get a view of the Cord 810. Um, so just blew people away, way ahead of its time. Um, and then with Duesenberg, the first Duesenberg being created, uh, the first rather passenger Duesenberg, because the Duesenbergs weren't racing prior to that with their engines. Um, the first delivery was in 1921 of the Duesenberg straight eight that we now know as the Model A, which the museum actually owns that first Duesenberg. It was donated to us in 2019 from the Castle family that originally received delivery of it in 1921 in Hawaii. Um, the, the passenger vehicles by Duesenberg went from 1921 also until 1937. Um, so obviously the closure of the company in 1937, that's when all the vehicles ceased production. Uh, and you have these three different unique marks with Auburn, Cord, Duesenberg, three very different vehicles, pretty much all under the same management and under the Auburn Automobile Company and the Cord Corporation. So this, uh, this company had uh, basically a vehicle for every single person from um, uh, kind of an entry level all the way to the, as Sam has put it before, the 0.1% of the world's population by being able to obtain and acquire a Duesenberg Model J. Now, most of the operations took place in Indiana for these companies, but how far reaching were their sales? Yeah, so the Auburn Company, at its peak in 1931, had 113 dealerships in 93 different countries. So it was a huge network for a relatively small auto company. Now, part of that success is attributed to the flair, the, the great Gatsby-esque nature of these cars, and, and a lot of that had to do with the celebrity ownership. Who were some of the A-listers that were seen behind the wheel of these cars? It, it ranged from vaudeville stars to uh, music bands of that time, uh, silent film stars, uh, Olympic stars like Sonia Henney, who did figure skating, she owned a Cord A10. Uh, Amelia Earhart, she owned a Cord A12. The, the, the highest or most recognizable uh, 
people at that time. Yeah, I lo- love Babe Ruth. He owned in Auburn. Um, you look at uh, Duesburgs too, uh, fe- uh, female owners that had them too. Um, Greta Garbo. I mean, so, you know, imagine uh, these people going to uh, William Randolph Hearst Mansion, um, Casa La Grande, and at the Hearst Castle, you know, the Duesenberg Model J's were some of the first that could really, in a luxury car, climb those hills. Greta owns, which was William Randolph's her girlfriend, uh, one of those. Actually, I think she owned two Duesenberg Model J's. Um, so imagine if you've been to Hearst Castle, driving up that long driveway all the way to the top to Casa Grand uh, in a Duesenberg Model J. Uh, Father Divine was another one that had a Model J. Um, it's and they were pictured all over the place. I mean, if you owned one of those cars, um, it, it was just just absolutely amazing. Something else that you mentioned earlier was the uh, impact that racing had with the brands. Talk about what were some of their efforts with competition. Yeah, so they were really big into uh, stock car racing, and then this is Auburn and Cord. Um, with Duesenberg, while they were making passenger cars, they, they kept racing as well. Uh, that was kind of Augie Duesenberg's forte there. Uh, Duesenberg won the Indy 500 in 1924, 25, and 27. So that also kind of helped increase their allure when Cord acquired Duesenberg in 1929. Uh, with, with Auburn's and Cord's, mainly what they did was stock car racing. So we talk about fl- the flying mile. Cord uh, in 37, uh, with the Cord A10 and A12, they went to the Bonneville Salt Flats and did flying miles. And uh, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, they did a 24-hour event or a thousand mile event and just uh just to show that not only were you buying these very high value stylish cars but you were also essentially buying your personal uh, sports car with the ability to do in excess of 100 miles per hour in these cars let's bring the conversation up to modern day guys because one of the most unique things about the museum is the fact that it's housed in the company's design and kind of show center Talk about how did the museum get started? So what was really interesting, um, so there are three organizations and some people, or I would say probably the majority of people don't know the separation, but what first started in the 1950s was the Auburn Court Duesenberg Club. And that was a gathering of interested individuals that started out in the 50s that wanted to create a newsletter and, and share the passion and love for Auburn's courts and Duesenbergs. They started to have their annual reunion here in Auburn, Indiana, to celebrate those vehicles. And then the formation of the Auburn Court Duesenberg Festival happens. So the festival was created to also celebrate the history and heritage of these vehicles, gather people of like minds and like interests and celebrate the cars along with having grand parades and events and dinners and um, all of the wonderful things. We continue that tradition to this day. Uh, the museum itself was, uh, was a grand interest of many dedicated individuals that started in the 1960s, and their main charge um, was to save this building. So after the company closed in 1937, uh, thankfully, the building was continued to be used. It was part of the Auburn Court Duesenberg Company that used uh, a lot of the parts that were left here and 
basically created a dealership network and parts network. Uh, later on, it was used for a, a lot of different purposes. Um, there was a machine shop in the building. There was a motorcycle shop and sales room in the building. Um, you could clothing, um, literally stuffing winter jackets in this building. I've been told there was bread delivery here. So thankfully, the building was continued in its use. Um, however, it did receive a lot of damage during that time period. Um, so the group of individuals who wanted to save this building in the 1960s established a nonprofit corporation. Um, we have the drawing of the original vision of what the honoring of these vehicles could be and a museum. It is literally, it looks like a jail cell on courthouse square here in Auburn um, that you would keep in Auburn Accord or Duesenberg in and just swap it out. And basically there you're celebrating that history by having those vehicles on display. Well, fast forward to 1973 and the nonprofit corporation, Auburn Automotive Heritage Inc., which is still our, our nonprofit corporation, um, purchased this building and saved it from the wrecking ball because it was for sale and if nobody was going to purchase it, like a lot of other buildings in the 70s, it would have been hit by the wrecking ball. So the building was saved. Um, it was purchased in 1973 um, for about $150,000 and the organization put about another $150,000 into restoration of the original grand showroom. Um, which is 12,000 square feet of Art Deco splendor with 20-foot tall ceilings, 6-foot tall Italian chandeliers, which this organization had to work to get the chandeliers back because they were auctioned off. Real long story and a lot of passion. But July 6, 1974, the museum opened to the public. And because the charge originally was to save this building and then continue to build the museum. Uh, the museum did not own any cars. We only own this building. We had 24 cars on display in the main showroom for opening. Um, and a couple of years later, we got our first vehicle donation. Then let's look at 2021. We own 118 vehicles and two airplanes. So this building is, is also incredibly unique in the fact that we are the only automobile museum in the world in its original international headquarters. So when you walk through the building, um, like right now, Sam and I are sitting in the original boardroom of the Auburn Automobile Company. Behind us is EO Cord's office. Uh, the marketing offices are here, the design wing, the clay modeling studios, the grand showroom, um, where the drafting studios were. This all happened right here. So we don't exactly recreate the history, we preserve it. And when you come here, you're walking right into that history. It happened right here. Now, despite these vehicles being out there for over a hundred years, are you guys still seeing these cars come to light? Are they still coming out of the woodwork and being found in uh, barns and sheds around the country? There are, they are still out there. I'll let Sam speak a little bit more to that. Yeah. Uh Recently, too, there was a, a Cord L29 that was found and removed out of a barn, and a uh, local restoration shop out at Napanee did a, a very fantastic job of, of bringing that back to life. Uh, you might have seen um, uh, American Pickers, like, I think three or four years ago, they found a six-cylinder, 36 Auburn, in a barn and bought it and had uh, Doug Prey out in Oklahoma restore it. So there's they're still out there, 
uh, hopefully we keep finding them and keep having the ability to uh, bring them back to life. I, I heard a, a lot of um, uh, meeting a lot of these people when they bring them to the festival after restoration or talk about their recent finds. I've seen photos of these vehicles in barns that literally they could not get to the barns because they were just, it was all mud everywhere. They had to lay down um, uh, plywood sheets all over the place just to get the cars out of these barns and have tracked or heard about this certain vehicle for maybe 10 years um, that, you know, maybe two brothers on a farm property, there's this supposed vehicle in the barn, but nobody's ever seen it. And the town talks about it, but again, nobody has seen it. And then finally, after 10 years or so, very private people maybe will come around to the idea of parting with something um, and then being able to be acquired. So uh, they're still out there. It's a, it's amazing. According to your guys' data and registries, how many vehicles are known? And then maybe the more important question, how many total vehicles were built? Um, in terms of Auburn, the total amount of vehicles built were probably around less than 150,000 throughout all the model years for just Auburn. Uh, the Cordell 29, they made just over 5,000. The A10, A12, they made just under 3,000. And then with the Duesberg Model A, the running number is 650. And then for the Model Js, uh, the number is 481. And of those that remain, the, the very earliest Auburns are super rare. Once you start getting into around the Eocore era, 1924 or so, they, they start to be more common, more out there. Um, in terms of like percentages and such for the Auburns, I'm not sure. Uh, but for the L29s, it's less than half. For the A10A12s, it's right about half. And then for the Dewsburg Model A, it's only a couple dozen. Like really not very many at all. And then for the Dewsburg Model Js, it's around 300 some. So about 70, 75% of those are still around. And hands down, as you guys well know, the the best place to see these cars, uh, in addition to the museum, is the Auburn Corps Duesenberg Festival, which takes place every year at the end of summer. I have been several times, and it is a unique experience. It's so much fun because it's got that small-town feel to it, and then you combine all of these beautiful Art Deco vehicles that are just scattered throughout around the town square and just all on the different side streets. And the festival is multi-day. There's so much to see and do. And Brandon, it sounds like that all started because of that event, that first event that was held way back in the 1950s. Yeah, really, they came to Auburn to create the annual union with the Auburn Corps Duesenberg Club, again, just a gathering of um, a couple dozen individuals, um, and then finding or founding uh, the festival, um, and then the founding of the museum. So uh, we're one of the longest running and still one of the highest attended Fest, classic car festivals uh, in the country. And we have people from all over the world that come here. Like Sam was mentioning, uh, it, probably one of our, our larger groups that come here are from the UK and from Australia. Um, there is, the club membership is worldwide. Our, our museum membership is even worldwide. Um, so people come to beautiful little Auburn every year, except for, you know, 
2020, but we're just going to pass on that and not even talk about it. Um, but they come to this beautiful, small Midwestern town where these amazing vehicles were created. And what I think is so amazing too, um, at, at the time that these vehicles were created, there were less than 5,000 people living in Auburn, Indiana. And this company and this city had worldwide recognition. And to this day, we have less than 15,000 people here, and we almost four times the population will come here for the Auburn Court Duesenberg Festival. People actually, residents, some of them will leave town and just rent their house out for that entire week. And what's really interesting too, and I, I just laugh about it and tell people about it often, you know, Sam and I, we're, we're really the only ones that can drive the vehicles. Um, but we'll, like, for example, yesterday, uh, we're getting a Model J ready um, for being our Model J that we'll take out throughout the year, probably put in the ACD parade, et cetera. Um, so our pit crew works on it, which is an all-volunteer group that meets twice a week and works in our conservation center on these vehicles. They get them ready to go out on the road. Sam works with them and, and manages kind of the priority list for the year, a lot informed by vehicles we're taking out on the road or out to shows so uh we we can drive around yesterday i was driving this beautiful turquoise model j um that if we were driving in anywhere else america i mean people would probably be driving off the road because they're just like what is that here in auburn though people look at they might glance at you a lot we get a lot of waves and thumbs up and stuff like that but it is so commonplace to see these classic vehicles, especially every year during the festival, that you don't get the, oh my God, what's driving down the road? It's like, oh, that's a cool bottle, Jay. Me. <laughs> oh, Duesenberg. Oh, Duesenberg, <laughs> oh, right. Nothing to see here. Now, how many uh, cars are you guys expecting for this year's event? I would say typically between ACD cars, you will get about 100 or so that show up. Um, the, the, the best way to see them all, obviously, is to attend the parade. Uh, we'll they'll go in, in order with all the Auburn's courts and Duesenbergs. Uh, they all meet at Eckhart Park beforehand, and that it's always swamped there with cars. And one of the, one of the neat things, too, like you had mentioned, um, like uh, cars tucked away at barns and stuff, you'll see like two, three, or four of them sitting on trailers that have like, you know, the, the flat tires and, and the, the rusty tops and such. And, or if it's like a convertible top, it's all tattered and stuff. And, and they're there to like look for parts and find out more about their car. They find the history. So there you see those all types from the hundred point Concord restoration to, uh, I, I just got it out of this guy's shed two weeks ago and brought it here. And the group, and the group that comes here, honestly, probably that car on the trailer is going to get more attention than the Concorde quality car. They're like, where'd you find it? What's the history? What are you going to yep. do? <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, it really is a homecoming. And like you, like you were saying, I mean, basically anyone that has a connection to these vehicles or has a vehicle in whatever state of condition, they want to be there. They want to be around other like-minded individuals to celebrate that legacy and that history. Guys, I got to ask, um, is there any of the family members that are still involved with the museum or, or living in Auburn? Uh, not living in Auburn, but uh, the Burek family is still involved with the museum. The Cord family is still involved with the museum. Um, Extension of the Duesenberg family. 
Yep, Duesenberg family members are still involved. All three of those groups, they come every single year. Um, they're members, some of them lifetime members of the museum. Uh, we communicate with them a couple of times a year and look forward to seeing them during the festival. Um, the museum also created early on a program called um, Connecting Rods. And it started out as people who were employed by the Auburn Automobile Company, uh, and we would have a luncheon for them and a, and a talk and basically uh, compile a lot of their records and their oral history um, here for the museum's archives. Uh, now it's getting more to the point of people that were uh, related to individuals that work for the company. But there was an interesting period here where docents on the floor here at the museum used to work for the company and they could talk to visitors directly about, oh yeah, I was in charge of X, Y, and Z. And I can tell you about my history here and, and what the company did firsthand. That's so cool. Yeah. And with that program too, we invite anyone who is like, oh, it's my father, it's my grandfather. Um, I mean, it's not only just Cord and, and Duesenberg and Bjerg and the other executives like Harold Ames, his grandson comes every year. Um, we even invite the person whose uh, grandfather did upholstery, something as seemingly inane as that. We're more than welcome them here to kind of share the story that they knew. And uh, we have a, a, a big list of workers that we've confirmed that worked here, and that it's always growing and expanding, and we want it to grow and expand and get more accurate and more detailed and uh, programs like that. And with the reunion is one of the best ways to do that. Yeah, I'm always surprised, guys, that your team really works hard to curate this information related to the brand. I think you guys do a great job of preserving that information, displaying it in different ways. I know it seems like your team was one of the first to even include kind of digital displays to go with the cars. I remember you guys introduced that a couple years ago, which was pretty neat, and, and it's a great way to celebrate this history. And it's important to note that the museum is open. People don't have to wait for the September festival to see these cars. The museum's open. The festival is underway, full steam ahead with those plans. Guys, what's the best way for listeners to keep up to date with the museum, um, with what's going on there, as well as with the festival? Uh, the best way is uh, for the museum is looking at our website, which is real easy to remember, automobilemuseum.org. Uh, and then also our social media accounts. Our most active is Facebook. Uh, we try to post every single day. Uh, this month we're celebrating Women's History Month, so uh, we're taking a look at photos. We have an incredibly active social media following. So we're very fortunate for that. Um, so I would say checking with that. The, the festival is also an easy website, acdfestival.org. Um, and you know, you can always just give us a call, give us an email, um, and want to, want to see what's going on here. Um, we've got a lot of great things that we're working on, new programs, events, exhibits, uh, donations coming to the museum. So we're always sharing something new. So we, we love being in the news, uh, and for people to read about us and we've got great things going on all the time. We're, we're starting to pick up now. It's, it's, uh, really warm day here today in the past week couple weekends have been too so our visitorship is starting to increase and so just lots of opportunity uh, to space out and, and still enjoy yourself and 
check out these fantastic cars. Yeah, like this weekend, we uh, had a nice full parking lot, beautiful sunny weekend, and we had the Boy Scouts doing their Pine Race Derby here at the museum. Very cool. Well, for listeners, I encourage you guys, if you haven't been to the museum, it is worth the trek to beautiful Auburn, Indiana. And then, of course, make plans also to get to the festival. Brandon and Sam, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I look forward to seeing you guys this fall. I'll be there. Sounds good. We'll be there working. We can chat for you for a little bit, but we'll be running around. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Don't adjust that dial. On the Move, we'll be right back. Our program is proudly presented by Meekum Auctions, the world's largest collector car auctions. Now back to Matt and John. John, as we gear up for the Glendale auction, one of the remarkable things is the amount of collections that will be offered for sale. There's a total of eight different collections that will be crossing the block. Give us some background, John. What role do collections play overall in the Mecham auction business? And then also of these eight, do you have a particular favorite? Well, first of all, Matt, yes, you know, interesting that collections over the years have become more and more of a part of the fabric of what makes Mecham Auctions so very special. And that has been an intentional strategy over the years was not only to continue to appeal to the individual collector that wants to buy or sell a single car, but also to appeal to the big collectors as well. And the consignment team at Mecham have really done an outstanding job. It's a big effort to go out, travel, meet with these folks, get these collections put together, bring them to auction. But, you know, we've proved this auction company has proved that it is well worth the effort and then the results really pay off for these sellers now that i've said that glendale arizona meekum now in its third year there once again bringing some great collections now we've talked about the big steve todd hunter collection that is one of the main attractions 20 vehicles seven of those are high-end ferraris and just perhaps one of the finest collections in regard to quality Mecham has ever had, but there is a lot more. Another one of our main attractions, Matt, one of the collections is called the Napa Valley Collection, and it's a great group. It's it's 18 vehicles total. Four of those are trucks, a couple of pre-war classics, six really nice high-end European cars, a 1970 Mazda Cosmo, a real cool oddity, but Something that really jumped out at me, five classic American muscle cars. And let me just kind of run down those for you briefly here. Uh, A 70 442 W30 convertible, a 66 Yanko Stinger, a 69 Torino GT with the Cobra Jet 428, a 68 Mustang GT with that same 428 Cobra Jet, and a Duntov award-winning 69 Corvette convertible 435. All five of these American classics, Matt, four speed manual transmissions and this entire collection selling at no reserve of the eight collections coming to glendale what jumped out at you i really like this uh chrysler 300 collection john and you know when you talk about performance-oriented cars from the 50s. You got to talk about Chrysler's 300. It started off in 1955, then known as the C300. And one of the remarkable things, John, that I really like about it is that is the uh, first occasion of the 331 cubic inch Hemi that had 300 horsepower, the first American production car to have that amount. And then after that, Chrysler kind of ran with what we, we now know as the letter cars, where this 300 series then got attached a letter starting with the 1956B and running through 1965, which ended the series, and that was known as the 300L. Interesting, there wasn't an I, but at any rate, these letter cars are very cool, lots of horsepower. Over their years, they were then equipped with a 354-inch 
Hemi with 340 horsepower. You could get an optional setup getting 355 horsepower. And that was really cool, John, because that was the first American production engine to have one horsepower per cubic inch. So these cars are really cool. And this collection has six great cars. And uh, what's neat about it is that it you get a wide assortment. There's a 300C, there's a 300D, there's an E, there's an F, there's an H. So I love it and I uh, really can't wait to see it cross the block. You know, you mentioned the performance aspect of the Chrysler letter cars, Matt, and certainly a lot of folks talk about that and celebrate that in the early years of of them. They actually did quite good on racing as well. But let's not forget about the styling. A guy by the name of Virgil Exner was the head of Chrysler Styling and came up with a design theme during this time period called Forward Look. So you combine the wild styling of these cars with the performance that they had and that's why they are such strong collectibles today great pick great group of cars and really looking forward to seeing uh, all of the entries across the auction block coming up at Meekum Glendale you've been listening to Meekum presents on the move brought to you by State Farm for more information visit Meekum.com and join us again next time as we take you inside the world of muscle and collector cars and more